Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello, welcome to a special edition of the CER podcast. We're recording not in London or Brussels today, but uh, this episode we're recording in Levy, Finland, where we have just concluded the CER's Arctic Bridge Summit. I'm joined by Elizabeth Bra and Ethan Corbin, two of our speakers at the summit. Elizabeth is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and Ethan is the director of the Defense and Security Committee at the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. We're going to talk about security and defense in the Arctic. The Arctic is changing, temperatures are rising, the ice is melting, and aside from the effects that that has on the people in the region and the climate worldwide, it also means that the region's resources, its oil and gas, are slowly being unlocked. Let me put two scenarios to you. The first one, the Arctic is the next big theater of conflict. The race for resources and military control of a strategically highly relevant region will lead to proliferation and tension between great powers with an interest in the Arctic. Or the second scenario, the Arctic is unique. It is a region where international law and multilateral cooperation, for example through the Arctic Council, are shaping relations between countries and the challenges of the environment and the need for scientific research means that the Arctic will not create but rather diffuse tensions between the East and the West. Ethan, shall we start with you? Sure. Um, that's an oblique scenario, but it's within a context that's understandable. Listen, the Arctic isn't, isn't immune from the general rising amount of conflict uh, that's happening between the East and the West. What was previously an attempt at strategic cooperation in the wake of the Cold War has clearly shifted towards strategic competition between Russia and, I guess we could say, NATO, largely because Russia views that in the larger European security architecture, its interests are not adequately represented. So Russia also has a significant amount of interest in the Arctic and has about 50% of the coastline of the Arctic is Russian. Now, in contrast to that, the four other of the five littoral Arctic states are NATO states, which means they also have significant amount of strategic interest in the region. And as this starts to open up to, as you noted, potential exploitation and exploration, uh, as it becomes a potential avenue for transit, the two opposing viewpoints will probably inevitably lead to at least some amount of competition about how to use and exploit the region. Now, I don't necessarily believe, given my understanding of the Arctic, that that's going to lead to conflict, but I'd like to hear what Elizabeth had to say about this. Thank you. Yes, the question is whose friend and whose foe in the Arctic. And even during the Cold War, there was a significant amount of cooperation between the Soviet Union and the Western Arctic states. And the question is, can that continue? And what we're seeing now is uh, Russian military buildup in the Arctic. And uh, that raises the question, as Ethan just pointed out, will it be a, an area, a region of conflict or uh, strategic cooperation? And Russia seems to be pursuing a dual track strategy where on one hand they build new military bases or restore Soviet military bases, but on the other hand keep offering an olive branch to the West in the form of cooperation suggestions. And as far as I'm concerned, the military build-up is nothing major. It's essentially infrastructure for soldiers who could then support 
commercial transit in the Arctic. But of course, Russia, as it does with other military activities, promotes it quite actively to the media to show that it, it's very present in the Arctic in the way that, that other Arctic states are not. Then the West, as Ethan just said, mainly NATO, but also Sweden and Finland, have to respond somehow. And that's where we are now. Should we consider this a change from the Cold War status quo of cooperation amidst global tension? Or is it, is it a new game where cooperation is not possible? All right. There's a lot to unpack in both of your answers there. One thing that I would like to pick up on, I think, is the point that you raised, Ethan, about strategic competition between um, Russia and the West that possibly this is not actually about the Arctic. Possibly the Arctic is a region that mirrors conflict and tensions elsewhere. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no surprise that there's been a lot of uh, deterioration in the, in the relationships between the two sides for many years now, be it over issues such as planned ballistic missile defense systems in Europe by NATO to a perception of NATO expansion that is unneeded, unwarranted, and provocative from a Moscow perspective. Now, I think that that has led to, in, in the wake of the annexation of Crimea in 2014, to a total breakdown in communication. NATO, in April, I believe, of 2014, suspended all practical civilian and military cooperation with Russia as a result, and now the two sides exist in relative isolation of one another. Russia is under a significant amount of sanctions as a result, and it continues to meddle in eastern Ukraine, and is maintaining a significant campaign in Syria. And this is all something that seems uh, a demonstration of a Russian a voice in international affairs and Russian power that, it's, that it wants to make sure the West understands exists. And the, as a result, the Arctic is not immune from this new power demonstration by Russia. I would completely agree with Ethan that it's a power demonstration rather than a significant shift in military realities because if you look at Russian Arctic coastline which is about 7,000 kilometers a few military bases don't make a huge military difference. They are not close to anything anyway apart from the military bases near the Finnish border and also near Alaska. But that's exactly the game I would argue that, that Russia is playing. So in establishing and putting a few soldiers near the Finnish border and inviting the world's media to watch them, it shows we are a major power here and, and don't mess with us. And it doesn't really matter that it's a few hundred soldiers rather than a, a few hundred thousand soldiers. So... That leaves the West in, in this dilemma of how to respond. It's not a major military threat. I mean, it's, Russia doesn't want it to go unnoticed. So, so how do you respond without escalating? So that's an interesting point that the both of you raised, I think, about the security dilemma that is developing in this region and the gap in perception, perhaps, between what is actually happening and the rhetoric that surrounds it. Elizabeth, you've said earlier that there might be an olive branch as well, that the Russian side is reaching out. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, there was quite a, a lot of collaboration and cooperation, scientific, mainly during the Cold War. And the idea is that that can continue even despite the military tensions. And so Russia keeps promoting this idea that essentially there can be cooperation even despite all the geopolitical tensions and despite the military buildup, the Arctic is special. So that's uh, the second leg of the dual track strategy that it's pursuing. So where do you see concrete areas for cooperation between the East and the West in the Arctic region? I would say the, the, the main area is uh, scientific collaboration relating to climate change. And there is, I, I think it's, it's also an area of common concern for, for all three countries. And in, in fact, for, for Sweden and Denmark as well, who are immediate neighbors in, here in, in the Western part of the Arctic. And it's an area where they can absolutely pool resources, where they have a common objective. So, uh, and in fact, some of that is already 
happening. Uh, so th- that's a good starting point. I, I think there's many areas that there could we could find ways to work together. One of the biggest areas that is worrisome for Arctic states is that there's actually a growing amount of tourism in the in the area, and that cooperation and search and rescue is a great way of starting that. There's it's a vast vast area with very difficult climate and has very little infrastructure. Um, just to give you an understanding, uh, the Joint Rescue Command and Control in Norway registered in 2014 2000, over 2,700 different incidents of distress calls or, or, or rescue missions, so to speak. Um, so that's that's something I think that could be could be really rebooted as Russia has a significant amount of infrastructure that could be very useful to NATO allies, so to speak, in the area. But also, um, I'd like to think about um, working together on oil emergency response preparedness. I think that's something that is an area where we could work together. Oil recovery in ice and snow is not known very well, and it is potentially very damaging in a very delicate environment. And I think that there's some first steps that have been taken, but it can really be pushed further. So uh, we should also remember that despite broad-based geopolitical competition between East and West, the Arctic does remain an area of relatively good cooperation still to this day with Russia and the West. And I think that's um, seen quite well in the Arctic Coast Guard Forum that has been recently formed. In addition to that, at the bilateral level, Norway and Russia have uh, a very effective good cooperation at their border uh, and also in the Barents Sea as far as the delineation of fishing rights, etc. The seeds for cooperation and for good relations exist. But I, I completely agree with what Elizabeth is saying, that there is this public Russian you know, advocacy of enhanced international cooperation in the Arctic without any military component existing. What they mean by that is NATO doesn't belong up here. But at the same time, Russia is substantively revamping legacy military infrastructure in the region and expanding that with new airfields, bases, and ports. And I think that that is, as we've sort of been bringing up, this misunderstanding and these perceptions that are difficult for NATO member states that are in the area. They view that as potentially threatening and they don't understand what Russia's intentions and our motives are. That's interesting. Okay, let's talk a bit more about what NATO's role in the region could be, perhaps in the context of what you said earlier, Ethan, about practical cooperation, military cooperation between NATO and Russia being largely suspended at this point in time. Could the Arctic, aside from scientific research cooperation, be an area where communication between these two sides could open back up? I think bilateral dialogue is, is the key word here. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ethan, but I don't think Russia has a particularly strong appetite for dialogue with NATO right now. And But dialogue with Norway or Finland, who are obviously the, the closest and, and most important Arctic neighbors, uh, I think is quite possible. And uh, what I would also say about the NATO scenario is that the military buildup is obviously of great concern to Norway and Finland. And yet having been located near Russia or next to Russia for many centuries now in different country formations, they know that it's there is no point in escalating tensions or worsening the situation by calling on allies. So they do their best to tone down. And that's a dilemma for NATO. So how do you respond? Should Norway and, and, and Finland respond as, as countries rather than as, in Norway's case, as a member of NATO? last question. We have talked about the interests of the states in the region. What about the interest of states worldwide? China, for example, has an interest in in being part of the conversation there. What is the effect of that on the security dimension in the Arctic? Yes, you're right. China is a, a wannabe Arctic state for the reasons that Ethan mentioned, which is the enormous potential for extraction of natural resources in the region. And China, to that end, has 
built a very large embassy in Iceland from which it services Greenland, which is, you know, is a part of Denmark, but located in the Arctic. Geographically speaking, a major uh, part of the Arctic, but one with very few people, 57,000, I think, at the latest count, and semi-independence from Denmark. So it negotiates more or less independently with foreign countries. And that's where China comes into the picture, because Greenland is a poor region and one that needs investment. And lo and behold, here's China with plenty of cash to offer in exchange for access to Greenland's natural resources. And it raises the question what China's ultimate objective is in in the region, apart from extracting resources associated with Greenland. Does it want to become the the major power in addition to Russia? And should we all maybe be paying closer attention to that? Because as we know, the climate will change and the region will change and with that global commerce and trading. From my point of view, China's role is not entirely benevolent. I think China, much like Russia, has this idea of global power aspirations and it's going to try and project these interests anywhere in any space it can sort of push into. And I don't necessarily view that as wrong. I, I think that every state tries to do that. When they grow economically, they try and span their, their military capacity to defend those economic interests. And China is doing as any other state would do, trying to move into the spaces where it can expand its power and then defend those. And it's really interesting. They were here in Finland right now. They just recently, I believe, at the end of last year, commissioned their first large heavy icebreaker and should be done by 2019. So they'll be able to have a heavy icebreaker in a, just a few years. Ethan Carbon, Elizabeth Fra, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London. <laughs>